Let's not bow our heads and take a moment to go to God's throne of grace, seeking his blessing upon our worship of him this morning. Shall we pray together? Merciful, gracious God and heavenly Father, it is with holy awe and reverence that we approach thy throne of grace again. We have felt the spirits calling us to worship again. We have experienced the need to be taught of God again. And Father, we ask that it might now please thee to prepare our hearts. Grant, O Lord, that all of the elements of our worship may be done in spirit and in truth. May our worship be led by thy spirit. May it be in accordance with the truth of thy word. May it be sanctified by Christ, and may it therefore rise up before thy throne, acceptable and pleasing, a sweet-smelling savor to thee. Bless our worship, sanctified in the blood of Christ. Grant that our worship may be offered from circumcised hearts. Accompany thy word by thy spirit. Grant that thy word may find its way into our hearts, and that it may then give color to all of our living. May thy word penetrate our hearts and then permeate our lives. Grant that the renewing power of, the, of thy word and thy spirit may touch hearts and change lives again today. We ask, O oh Father, that thou wouldst open our eyes to behold wonderful things from thy word again this morning. Bless, O oh Lord, the work of preparation. May it prove to be a faithful administration of thy word. Grant to him who must bring it the necessary grace to bring it in a manner that pleases thee. We pray that in our worship that God's people may be edified, but above all we pray that thy name might be made great and holy and, and, and glorified. We pray, Father, wilt thou remove anything from us, anything that would hinder us from hearing and responding the voice to the voice of Jesus this morning. May we once again look into the wonderful face of our risen Lord and Savior. All of this we ask in the name, for the sake, and in the merits of Christ, thy Son, our Lord. Amen. I ask you to turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 23, a very well-known portion of Scripture. It is the, uh, the narrative, a narrative of Golgotha, Luke chapter 23, and I want to read the verses 26 through to the end of verse 49. Hear the word of God with me, beginning to read at verse 26. And as they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene, who was coming up from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that have never bore, and the breasts that have never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on me, and to the hills, cover us. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. And the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left, and Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments, and the people stood by watching. But the rulers scoffed at him, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. 
The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other replied, say, rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. And it was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two, then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. And our text for this morning is framed in the words of verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. May he add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word again this morning. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered with me here in Wellonport this morning. Part of my calling and privilege as a pastor is to minister to the dying and to their families. And over the years, I've noticed that family members listen very closely to the final words spoken by their loved ones. On several occasions, as I entered the room where the dying father or mother was laying, I found family members and friends quietly standing by at the bedside, straining their ears to hear so as not to miss any of those final parting words. And if you've had a parent or a sibling or even a precious friend die, then you will know what I mean. These last sayings of our loved ones are indeed precious to us. Final words can be very revealing. They tend to expose the heart and the mind of the dying person, and, and they enable us to see their true feelings about life. And then also, a person's last words can also be filled with a special depth of wisdom I mean, most people don't engage in idle prattle when they know they're about to breathe their last, and, and often a dying person offers some great wisdom or insight in their last few breaths. For example, it is said that Alexander the Great, in his final words, said, When I die, thrust my hands through my death shroud so that the world may see that my hands are empty. But of all the final words that have been spoken, none are more precious, none are more revealing, none are more filled with more meaning and wisdom than those crucial last words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. One writer said it well when he said that, in a very real sense, the final words of our dying Lord are windows. They are windows that enable us to look into eternity and see the heart of the Savior as well as the heart of the gospel. 
But in order to fully grasp the meaning of our Lord's final words on earth, we must remember also how he died and also where he died. For you see, Jesus uttered these last words not from a hospital bed or while he was comfortably ending his days in some peaceful uh, hospice. No. Neither did Jesus say them as he lay in his own bed at home. No. Jesus' last words were spoken as he was, be, as he was hanging from a cross. Jesus uttered these precious and powerful words as he was being crucified by Roman soldiers at the insistence of the Jewish religious leaders. At the time of our text, Jesus hangs on the cross. The crowds have turned from him, and they have, they have turned against him. Judas, Judas has betrayed him. Peter has denied him. His closest friends have left him, and God will yet abandon him. And in that context, with full conscious clarity, we hear Jesus pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In both services today, I want to listen with you to some of the last words of Christ as he hung on that cross on the hill of Golgotha. And this morning, I want to minister God's word you're using as my theme, Christ's appeal, Father, forgive them. We want to, first of all, determine for whom it was that Christ prayed, and then we want to consider for what it was that Christ prayed. Father, forgive them for whom the prayer was and what the content of the prayer was. You remember this story. Even our young children know it well. Jesus had been arrested. He had been charged, interrogated, whipped, beaten, tried, and finally found guilty. And before the tribunal of Pontius Pilate, his sentence was pronounced. He was condemned to die. His execution was to be the most accursed death, that of the cross. And he was taken out of the city to the hill of Golgotha, the place of the skull. He had been nailed to the tree, and as he hangs on that cross, waiting to die between the two other criminals who were to be executed with him, we now listen to his last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Imagine now for a moment, if you can and will, that he would be an ordinary human being sentenced to die. Imagine someone sentenced to death, and as they're being strapped into the gurney before being subjected to that lethal injection, they are always given an opportunity to utter some final words, and even then, those words are, are of interest. They're often even published in the newspapers. So what do we hear? Well, some said nothing. They faced death as they faced life. Cold, hard, stoic, almost devoid of any real human emotion. Some in that last moment of life snarled defiantly from that death chamber to their executioners, I will see you in hell. Others reacted very emotionally. Some cry out, still protesting their innocence. Some burst into heartbreaking sobs, having to be literally carried to the place of execution. Some even take a last opportunity to try to escape. And our human minds understand those reactions from people who were sentenced to die. But how different were the words from Christ facing his own execution? Listen with me again to his last words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And surely those have got to be the strangest last words ever uttered by a man sentenced to die. In fact, adjectives such as strange or, un, or unusual really can't adequately describe the words of Christ from the cross. These words are unique 
even in all of Scripture, we find no other words similar to these of any dying man, with the exception, perhaps, of Stephen, who was the first of the martyrs to follow the Lord in death. He, too, evidenced somewhat of a similar spirit toward those who had killed him. It's interesting, though perhaps even significant, that on the whole, as we search our Bibles, we discover that for the most part, Scripture is silent concerning the death of men of God. Both Peter and Paul, two of the most significant instruments in the hands of God during the formation of the early New Testament church, they passed from the scene without a single word about how or where or when they died. Tradition holds that Peter was crucified in the manner of Christ. Tradition also holds that at the last moment, Peter asked if he could be crucified upside down with his head pointed to the ground because as tradition holds, he considered himself unworthy to die in the same manner as his Lord. However, all of this is simply tradition or even conjecture and has no scriptural warrant. The scriptures provide no account of the death of Peter. Same is true of Paul. The last we hear of him, he's imprisoned in, prison, in, in Rome. The traditional view holds that he was executed there by Rome, but other traditions hold that he was eventually released and continued his missionary journeys to Spain. Regardless, regardless which tradition is true, the Bible is silent on the matter. The book of Acts closes with Paul still imprisoned in Rome. We simply hear no more of him or about uh, him after his imprisonment. I think it correct to ascertain that the silence of the scriptures with respect to the death of the saints is significant. I think it can be correctly argued that the fact that the Bible gives us virtually none of that information concerning the deaths of even the saints, that that has purpose. I believe it to be legitimate to suggest that the reason the scripture gives us little or no mention of the deaths of the heroes of the faith of the New Testament is to draw our attention away from men and direct all of our attention, focus all of our affection to the death of him hanging on that cross who is central to all gospel proclamation. The scripture is silent concerning men in order that our attention may be directed to that one death that is different from all other deaths. And when we now in that frame of mind listen to him speak as he hangs dying on that cross, then we are suddenly gripped by his words, Father, Forgive them, for they know not what they do. But who was it now that Christ prayed for? Well, a superficial reading of the text would teach that Christ here is asking forgiveness for those who were here immediately responsible for his death. And it is then further assumed that Jesus is pleading for their forgiveness on the basis of their ignorance. The presupposition then goes something like this. These Romans, these soldiers who whipped him, scourged him, and finally fastened him to that tree, they did not know who he was. <laughs> had they known, had they known he was the very Son of God, surely they would not have killed him, would they? No. Their action was committed in ignorance, and therefore it is assumed that Christ asked the Father to forgive them of their sin because they were not familiar with the true facts. And that's a commonly held interpretation of this text. However, when you examine that interpretation in the light of the Bible, then that conclusion presents us with many difficulties. That interpretation becomes problematic in that it simply does not square with other scriptural truths. That Jesus prayed for these men because they were not familiar with the gospel, that's not a scriptural truth. 
And ultimately, when examined in the light of the rest of the Bible, such an interpretation must be rejected since it is obviously in conflict with other truths clearly given us in Scripture. You see, in the context of all of God's Word, it is impossible that Jesus prays for forgiveness for these men on the basis of their ignorance. They know not what they do. Why? Because the Bible clearly teaches that ignorance can never be a basis for pardon. Ignorance can never be an excuse. Do we not hear Paul telling us in crystal clear language that no man shall have an excuse before God? Those who have heard and have rejected and those who have not heard the gospel all stand equally guilty and condemned before the bar of God's justice. No man shall have excuse. Capture that concept with me using a couple of illustrations from Scripture itself. Look at me with look at me look with me for instance at, at the history of Sodom and Gomorrah, and contrast now those cities with the history of Nineveh. You're familiar with that history, I'm sure. When we speak of Sodom and Gomorrah, we're given two facts in biblical history. First of all, they were extremely godless cities. Were they more godless and more wicked than other cities? Perhaps. Perhaps not. We don't know. But we do know they were wicked cities. Secondly, we also know that they were destroyed by divine intervention. God himself intervened to facilitate Sodom's ruin. Scripture is crystal clear that the cities were destroyed by a violent act of God. But further, as the Scripture is concerned, we are not told that God ever sent a prophet to call them to repentance and obedience. We read simply that they sinned, they were destroyed in their ignorance. The entire account centers around one man, Lot, who was spared because of the prayers of Abraham. Were the other citizens warned? Were they given opportunity to repent and be spared as well? Nothing in the scripture indicates that. They sinned, they were guilty, they died in their ignorance. And now notice with by way of contrast, God's dealing with Nineveh. This, too, was an extremely wicked city. But we know that God had mercifully determined to spare Nineveh, and he did so. But but, but God did not simply pronounce pardon on them in their ignorance. God did not simply overlook their sin or forgive them because they knew not what they were doing. No, God sent the prophet Jonah to teach and to preach. God sent Jonah to call attention to their sin, the sins of the citizens of Nineveh. And the prophet warned them of the wrath of God that was sure to come if they perished in their unbelief. And then Nineveh heard the voice of the Lord through the prophet. They heard, they turned, and they were pardoned. They were pardoned. Were they pardoned because they were now no longer ignorant? No. They were pardoned because of the mercy of God upon their repentance. Their sin was forgiven, not because or while in their ignorance, but because they repented of their sin. And my dear people of God, it's an important biblical principle, and the concept is set before us here in, in all of this. It's important. The only pardon... The only pardon known and taught by Scripture is a pardon preceded by repentance. When God wills to grant pardon to a sinner, then he does so by first of all bringing the sinner to a knowledge of sin, and then also he graciously brings them to repentance. We see that again very clearly in the account of King David. You know that story as well. You 
know of the great twofold sin of David, adultery and murder. You know also that it was the will of the Lord to restore David to God. But, but God did not simply pronounce pardon on David. No, God sends the prophet Nathan to accuse David of his sin. You are the man, David. And, 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 God, and God calls him to repentance through the prophet. And repent he did. And then God, and then God reckon, was reconciled to David. And that's precisely what scripture teaches us. We read in 1 John 1, you heard it this morning, if we will but confess our sin, then God is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all iniquity. Well, now, if we know that to be a biblical truth, then it becomes clear to us that the prayer of Christ in our text cannot mean, Father, forgive them because they are ignorant. It cannot mean that Christ seeks to have these Roman soldiers forgiven because they do not know their sin. That kind of forgiveness is completely foreign to Scripture. No one will be saved without first of all recognizing and confessing their sin before God. To suggest that Christ sought forgiveness for these men without a contrite heart and spirit would do violence to all that Christ and his disciples had taught us about the true reconciliation of fallen men and women to God. But the question then becomes, what then does Christ pray here in our text? People God, capture this with me. Just as Nathan came to David in order that David would be brought to a sense of his guilt before God and then was forgiven, it's now in that same way that we must understand and interpret this prayer of Christ. Jesus prayed that those for whom he prayed would be brought to a knowledge of the truth. Jesus prayed that they would be ignorant of their sin no longer. Jesus prayed that they would be convicted of their sin and that through the knowledge of sin they would be brought to repentance for that was the only way they could receive the necessary forgiveness from God. And this fact becomes even clearer to us when we see the entire crucifixion scene before us. Capture the concept with me. We see not one cross but three. Jesus hung between the two criminals one on his left, one on his right. And one of those two received pardon, one did not. What now was the difference between these two? These two men stood equally condemned. Each of them had broken the law of God. Each of them had broken the law of man. Both were receiving their just reward for their crimes against humanity and against the kingdom of God. Yet one received pardon from God, the other did not. Why? Because one repented, the other did not. Make no mistake then, the prayer of Jesus did not seek pardon on the basis of misunderstanding or ignorance. No, Jesus, even as he was dying on the cross, he prayed that those for whom he was dying would be brought to a knowledge of truth, a knowledge that would be followed by repentance, and that through their repentance they would receive pardon from God. And my dear people of God, that this can be the only correct interpretation becomes even more apparent when we now go to consider the identity of those for whom Christ prays. And congregation, as I read the many commentaries on my shelf in preparing this sermon, I found many different interpretations attempting to identify precisely who it was that Christ prayed for here in the text. 
And some theories held that Christ was praying for the Roman soldiers involved in the crucifixion. And the argument then is posited that these soldiers were simply following orders from their superiors, and therefore, as some would hold, they can't be held responsible, and so Christ asked that they be forgiven. I've heard the same argument presented concerning the Russian soldiers who slaughter innocent men and women in the Ukraine. Without mercy, the Russian soldiers spill the blood of innocent people, and we're told, but those soldiers are just following orders. They're not responsible for their atrocities. Others posit the claim that, that Christ here prays for the Jewish leaders who had plotted and planned his death. And the argument then goes that the Sanhedrin, the chief priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, they were all very religious people. They were very religious men who honestly believed that they were executing an imposter, a blasphemer. And it is suggested that had they realized, had they known that he actually was who he said he was, had they realized that he truly was the Son of God, they would have acted differently. Still others suggest that Christ is praying for pardon for the people of Jerusalem, some of whom had wept bitter tears as he's made his way to the hill of Golgotha. And then finally, some posit the universalist claim that Christ here prays for the forgiveness for the whole world. So many different interpretations, and yet and yet none of these suggestions can be true. For you see, when we ask the question, for whom was Christ praying, we need to find the answer by carefully examining God's plan of redemption as that is given to us in all of Scripture. And then the Bible gives us the answer. You see, only a few short hours earlier, Jesus had also prayed to his Father. We find that prayer in John 17, and we heard it, Christ's high priestly prayer. We heard it in the Garden of Gethsemane, just moments before they came to arrest him. And there we hear him pray, Father, Listen carefully. He says, I pray not for the world, but I pray for those whom thou hast given me. Jesus did not pray for all men. He prayed only for some men. In that prayer, Jesus divides all of fallen humanity into two groups. And he says that he prays not for the world, but he prays for those chosen by the Father and given to him. Would Christ now be praying for a different group of people? Would he on the one moment pray for a certain group and then a few hours later pray for the forgiveness for a different group? Would Christ now contradict himself? Perish the thought. After all, is he not the immutable, unchanging God, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, and forever? Humans frequently change their minds, but not God Almighty. If it was then true in the Gethsemane that he prayed for those given him by the Father— then here in the cross, he still prayed for that same group of humans. The prophet Isaiah sheds further light on this matter for us. Follow carefully with me. In Isaiah 53, speaking of the coming crucifixion, he prophesies and says, He has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. The text says that Christ made intercession, prayer, for the transgressors. The question then becomes, who are the transgressors for whom Christ intercedes? The answer is given us in the verse itself. We read, he bore the sins of many and made intercession for the transgressors. 
This is a vital point that we may not miss. He bore the sins of many, and he intercedes for those whose sins he bore. They are one and the same group. He prayed for the transgressors whose sins he bore. Who now were those transgressors? Whose sins did Christ bear? And again, the text leads the way. He bore the sins of many. And in the New Testament, we read, he came to give his life as a ransom for many. Again, this is, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many. Follow with me now. The designation many is an indefinite term. It can be large or small, but it never means all. People of God, when we now hear the prayer of Christ in the context of God's plan of redemption, and when we then, in that context, ask the question, for whom was Christ praying? Then the answer becomes obvious to us. I lay down my life for my sheep. Christ died. Christ prayed. Not for a nameless mass. No. Christ dies and prays for his own. He prays for those given him by the Father. Jesus here confirms what in theological language is called particular or the limited atonement. He dies, he prays, he dies, he intercedes, not for the world, not for those who are ignorant. No, he prays for that limited number, that particular number for whom he expressly was sent and came to die. My dear people, God, the prayer of Christ is, def- is defined by the limits or the extent of the atonement. Jesus came to die for a definite, limited number of people. Jesus came to die for those whose names were written in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. It can be no other way. Forgiveness for some was ordained by the Father. It was obtained by the Son and applied by the Spirit. And it could only be received through the death of Jesus Christ. Apart from the vicarious atonement, there can be no forgiveness. And now we understand Christ's prayer. If I may take the liberty to paraphrase a little bit, Christ here prays, Father, Father, as I now lay down my life for my sheep, I pray that you would bring them all to repentance that they may therefore and thereby be forgiven. Jesus prays for every soul given him by the Father in eternity. Oh, people of God, having understood now the significance of this prayer, this prayer now holds some precious, precious implications for us. You see, having understood that Christ prays here only for his own, that he prays only for the elect, and knowing that Christ's prayers, being perfect, are always heard and always answered by the Father, to know then that Christ interceded here not for only for Abraham or for Isaac, not only for Jacob, Joseph, and Moses, not only for the disciples, not only for his mother standing there beside him in the shadow of the cross, but he prays also for all of those who are his own, spanning all of the centuries. And, 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 and that prayer then includes his own here in Wellenport this morning. Capture the tremendous implications now. Christ's prayer or his atonement was not offered in sweeping generalities. How impoverished the view of the Arminian (coughs) who argues that Christ died for anyone who would choose to accept it for themselves. No, Christ did not pray and then die and then simply wait to see who would come to believe it. No. Jesus prayed for, Christ died for a specific people. 
He prays for and he dies for those whom the Father called by name. And here in our text of this morning, Christ prays for every believer individually in the church collectively, for it was the church that was given by God to to Christ. Capture with me now in the context of all of this precisely what it was that Christ prayed here in our text. He prays for you, and he prays for me. And he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, for they do not yet know that they are sinners. Father, forgive them. Bring them to a knowledge of their sin. Father, forgive them. Bring them to repentance. Father, forgive them. Bring them to tears of penitence and bring them to faith in what I am about to do here on the cross for them. Father, as the whole world stands equally condemned in Adam, forgive those whom you have given to me from before the foundation of the world in order that they may be where I am going. Now it becomes a precious prayer for us when we now see that this prayer was not for a small group of Roman soldiers, when we see that Jesus' last words were not for the Jews in Jerusalem, nor for the whole world, but, 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 but it was for all of the elect, the elect of all ages and all generations, including us as part of the elect here in Wellenport, then this becomes an intensely personal prayer. <coughs> Sorry. Father, forgive them not because they are ignorant, but forgive them because I now lay down my life for them. Having understood that, then to our great amazement, we see Christ's prayer being immediately answered and fulfilled. We see the result immediately of Christ's prayer. The words were hardly out of his mouth. And listen, Jesus, Lord, when you come into your kingdom, Remember me. Remember me. We're going to hear that this afternoon, Lord willing. Startling words from a hardened, common criminal. Jesus looks at him and says, Today you shall be with me in paradise. A few moments later, a Roman soldier looks upon Jesus and cries out, Surely this was the Son of God. Another one of the elect had been gathered. The prayer of Christ was fulfilled again on the day of Pentecost when Peter preached, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ unto remission of sin. And 3,000 were added to the church. The prayer of Jesus is still being fulfilled daily as men and women are brought to faith and repentance at the foot of the cross through the preaching of the cross. And they do so because of Christ's prayer on that cross on Golgotha. Ah, my dear precious people of God, Tremble in amazement with me here and then fall on your knees at the foot of that cross with me as we praise God that he has prayed, Father, forgive them, for by faith you and I may know that we are part of them because he prayed, because the word and spirit of God are stronger than the powers of evil within our own fallen hearts, because God in his wonderful sovereign grace has answered the prayer of Christ on the cross. Therefore, you and I might know ourselves now and forever to be hidden in that secret place of safety within the bosom of Jesus Christ. 
My dear precious people of God gathered with me here in Wellaport this morning, what now will you do with the precious, precious gospel you have heard this morning? Will you simply think it was an interesting explanation and will you then simply receive it for information and continue on in your life remaining unchanged? If that is so for you, then I urge you to run to that cross as fast as your legs will carry you and then fall on your knees. Bury your face in your hands and confess your sin and beg him to wash you in his precious blood. He will freely, graciously grant it to you. People of God, God, search deeply into your heart and find there your love for God. Find their assurance and evidence that you are one of those prayed for by Christ when he hung on that tree. And then with tears of repentance mingled with tears of gratitude and joy, respond in a life of holy, sanctified thanksgiving. And as you then approach the end of your life, as you yourself stand at the threshold of eternity, then do so with confidence because of the prayer of Christ offered you here in the text of our morning, of this morning. Shall we pray? Father, we have heard the joyful sound again this morning, and we pray that each of us may be moved to say, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my riches gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Amen.